So this morning we look to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and I wanted to read a few verses to you. Uh, we will be concentrating our time on verses uh, 28, or I'm sorry, verses uh, 26 to 34 uh, specifically. Let's read that short portion of our text, and then we'll explain what it means. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26 What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn. And one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. I'm entitled this sermon this morning, Order in the Church. Order in the Church. And as we look at this, what Paul is trying to help the Corinthians of that time avoid is chaos, confusion. Faction, schism. He wants them to be unified, not only simply unified in some esoteric idea of fellowship, but he wants them to be unified in God's decrees and he wants them to be unified in God's practice. And specifically, he wants them to desire God's outcome related to the gifts. As we look at this text this morning, I want you to think about the motive Of the gifts. And I want you to think about what God is seeking to accomplish as the gifts were practiced in that time and as we have gifts in our time. I read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25 the secrets of his heart, after prophecy accomplishes what it will, the secrets of his heart, the one who hears, are disclosed. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring, so now you have a confession. Declaring that God is certainly among you. So you have this recognition. You have this testimony when prophecy accomplishes what it will. And the one who hears ought to not only worship God, but ought to confess God. And you see that this is even done in an orderly fashion. I'm not saying it's devoid of emotion. I'm not saying it's devoid of conviction. I'm not saying that sorrow and joy are absent from this. But I am saying that what God desires for his people, he desires that they are a people of decency and a people of order. And so you see 
that Paul is concerned with the outcome, the outcome of that order. That it doesn't simply stop at order, but it stops at essentially what God desires as he allows the gifts to function as they do. You see here in verse 26, succession. You not only see succession, but you see that there is an expected way in which the gifts operate in the assembly. You see that there's the expectation that the gifts actually operate in the assembly. For first, he says, what is the outcome then, brethren? Now let's step back a little bit here. He is engaging them as brothers. He is engaging them as those who are born again by God's spirit. We know that the test of time is a test that is sure, and it is the test of salvation through time, specifically that shows us if those who are called brethren really are brethren. To this point, Paul is simply assuming, rightly so, that they ought to respond the right way and that they will respond the right way. It is up to them to actually respond to what he's commanding them. So he says, what is the outcome then, brethren? He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to believers about their function in the church. He says when you assemble, assuming fellowship, he wants there to be order. He wants there to not simply be chaos or everyone doing things as they please or everyone doing things all at once. Look with me to verse 26. Each one has a song. Each one has a song. Let's stop there. The word of God tells us that we ought to sing in Ephesians with spiritual songs, with psalms. I do believe that the psalms, many of them are written in the composition, many of them by King David, others by others who wrote in that particular canon of scripture in the writings. But I believe that this psalm would not only be read, but often it would be sang. And there would be singing of the psalm. So you have this element of psalm reading in the early church, especially in this church in Corinth. Then look at this. Each one has a teaching in succession. One has a revelation. Now you see the gifts are beginning to be on display as you would see with teaching. So you see first teaching, the first gift that's introduced You see, perhaps even within the psalm, you see exhortation, encouragement, those who are bringing relief and encouragement to those and trying to build them up for edification through the reading of the psalm and then through teaching. And then you see a revelation in the face of an unfinished natural canon, natural scripture. You see that there's the need for direct revelation from God to men. And so in the church assembly at that time, you did have those who were coming forward in a decent and orderly way so that the revelation of God could be heard clearly. And so they would bring this revelation to the people and seek for people to test and measure and understand and act in accordance. Then you have the language. Each one has a language. All of this isn't happening all at once, but it's happening in an orderly manner. You recall what we said so far concerning the gift of languages to this point, that you have interpretation. You have also interpretation. Remember what we said, rather what the word of God says. Look with me, if you will, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 13. 
Therefore, let one who speaks in the tongue pray that he may interpret. If one does not have an interpretation or the gift of interpretation is not evident, then the gift of languages should also not be evident. Paul worked that out for us in verse 27 as well. If anyone speaks in the tongue, it should be by two or at the most three and each in turn and one must interpret. So you see that Paul is concerned here with outcomes, order, order in the church. He wants them to assemble because there you have order. There you have what God has decreed for his church. You don't simply have people in isolation. You don't have people trying to operate these things in society. You have the fellowship of the Lord's church coming together and operating what God has decreed for them, namely the gifts. Namely, what you see here, the reading of the psalm, which brings exhortation. I believe that gift of encouragement and exhortation is evident in that gift. You see the teaching and the corresponding effects of teaching amongst God's people. You see the revelation of the Lord, perhaps with the gifts of wisdom and knowledge, as we discussed earlier in Corinthians, related to that gift as well. And then you have the languages. And there must be interpretation. But look at what Paul says. He goes to purpose and he goes to motive. I believe that as we grow in our faith as believers, we have to be concerned with God's definition of purpose and his definition of order. We call that dispensations. We call that decrees. It's what God desires for us, but it's also how God desires for us to act. He wants us to act in concert with what we know. He wants us not to be concerned with our outcome, but to be concerned with his outcome. And then he wants us to do as he has commanded. You don't see here where Paul leaves this up for geographical interpretation, denominational interpretation. He says, this is what I desire for the churches of this time. Now, as you and I progress through the New Testament, we then have a charter that is expanded. We look at Timothy, Titus. We look at Revelation. We look at Galatians. And then we begin to understand as we function as a church, what is left to us to do and what are those things that we are to refrain? We have to be concerned with God's outcome. And his outcomes are plain. His outcomes are pure. He wants them to desire what we see at the very end of verse 26. Edification. Edification. The hope to build up your fellow man. Your fellow brother or sister in Christ. He wants them to be built up. Let all things be done for edification. They're not simply doing this for themselves. Although they benefit, we all benefit from the practice of God's gifts among us. We all benefit from our fellowship together. But it ought to be so that the motive for what we do is to build one another up. It's to build one another up. He says, let all things be done for edification. That speaks to not only motive, but it speaks to purpose. It speaks to purpose. The church becomes depressed. The church becomes divided. 
The church also suffers for reasons that are not to be so, as the church in Corinth did, in schism and faction when things are no longer done for the edification of one another. And so Paul sees that the practice is not simply what he's after. He's after the purpose and the motive to inform the practice. He assumes that the practice must be done. You can go to a lifeless so-called church today and hear the reading of the psalm. You can see and experience the teaching of God's word. Let's be honest. You can see the perversion of so-called languages. You can see people without interpretation simply babbling and feeling emotionally stimulated. And you can see people who say that those things are not for our time and argue against those things, rightly so. And yet their goal is not to edify. Their goal is to display from their own minds how wise they are, hopefully in your minds. But what we see here is that the goal of what we do. A church that will last up until the time that God has decreed for it to last does things for the edification of one another. We desire to build one another up, not tear one another down, not pretend to build one another up, but actually building one another up, not build ourselves up, but building one another up. Paul gets even more specific because he desires God's order in the church. Look with me, if you will, at verse 27. If anyone speaks in the tongue, if you're going to practice the gift of languages, it should be done in a certain way. This argues for the limitations on the gifts. So many want to simply go to some historical precedent as to why the gifts or certain gifts are operative or no longer operative. So many want to go to emotions. They appeal to some emotion as to why the gifts are operative or inoperative. So many want to appeal to philosophy as to why the gifts are operative or inoperative. But here I appeal to the order that God has established. The safe boundaries for the gifts that he's established to ensure that the purpose and motive of the gifts are operative as well. Paul's whole premise in everything we've read in chapter 14 is this. What is the point of practicing the gifts if you do not desire to build one another up? However, if you desire to build one another up, then you must understand which gifts do so at the highest level. And so he chooses out of this, we looked at this before, prophecy and languages. The purpose of languages being toward the unbelievers for their conviction. A judgment sign gift to them. Whereas prophecy is a gift for the believers. And he has placed around that, as God has communicated by his spirit through Paul, boundaries to ensure that that gift functions as it should. And we're going to get into that very shortly. But look at the orderly nature of this gift. If anyone speaks in a tongue, that is to say a language, that is to tie an ethnic people to an actual language, one that is supernaturally given, supernaturally uh, received, 
It has sentence structure. It has vocabulary. It has grammatical order. It has tense. It has mood. He's going to actual languages that those of that time who possessed this gift did not have to sit down in formal instruction and learn. They were endowed with it, those who possessed it, by the Holy Spirit. And being endowed with it, the only thing they lacked in many cases was the ability to interpret what they were saying. They had the language, but it was difficult for them in their natural flesh to translate that language into the tongue that needed to be heard. How did God remedy this? He raised up those, he raised up those with the gift of interpretation. Those who had the gift to not only understand what was endowed, but to interpret what was said and to do so on the spot. And the reason for this was edification. The reason for this was to build up those who heard. The content we've discovered even from Acts 2. We've discovered also the content of both prophecy and tongues because they are similar, which is why Paul desired for those in verse 19 rather that they speak in a prophecy rather than speak in tongues without interpretation. But we see in those two verses in verse 25 that the outcome is for those who heard to fall on their face and worship God and to declare that God is certainly among you. We actually see that happen in Acts 2. At the inception and the giving of that gift of languages on the day of Pentecost, that outcome is what God wanted. That's what he expected. That's what Peter explained. If you look at this order that's here, you see that there are those who desire to speak in this language. And that's all well and good. It is good in that time and in that place to desire that. This modern church has benefited from the actual gift. We have benefited from the gift of languages being operative. For many of our spiritual ancestors repented in the face of the gift of languages. They have turned from their sins into Christ and are forgiven and cleansed. And therefore, the word of the Lord spread in languages to unknown lands. We don't need to manufacture outcomes. We don't need to manufacture gifts in order to achieve outcomes and say those are God's outcomes. We can rejoice in what God has actually accomplished. If you look at this, if anyone speaks in the tongue, there should be order. It should be what? By two or at the most three. So now you have numbers. You know what the numbers two and three mean? Two and three. It means that there are two people who can come forward, no more than three. And Paul says, I want you speaking one at a time. Why? We talked about it in a few uh, in, in a chapter back. Be careful how you hear. I want you to hear what is said. I want you to test what is said. And you can't do that if everyone is speaking at the same time. I want you to make sure the content of these languages meet with what you agree with concerning what God has accomplished. And so you see here, he says, by two or at the most three, by two or at the most three, and each in turn, each in turn. So, again, you have one comes forward. That one speaks 
there's interpretation. And then a second comes forward. The second person speaks, and there is interpretation. You have, at the most, one more person coming forward. That person speaks in a language that they're endowed with as a gift of the Holy Spirit. And then it is accompanied by the gift of interpretation. And the purpose of each of those individuals who come forward is to build up the church. To build up the individuals in the church, not simply a church entity, but to build up the individuals that are hearing what they say. You see decency and you see order. Look at what he says. Each in turn, and look at this, and one must interpret. This looks so different from what you have maybe perhaps witnessed or have heard from charismaticism. It looks so different from the disorder of emotional stimuli that people place before you and claim that that is God at work. This is orderly. You don't see people falling all over the place. You don't see people babbling, jumping up and down. You see that people are coming forward and speaking clearly and being interpreted clearly. And then you may go. Then the next person speaks. And then at the most, a third person is allowed to come forward. But there must be interpretation. Without interpretation, Paul is going to say it in the next verse. I'll read it to you. Look at verse 28. But if there is no interpreter, look at this. He must keep silent in the church. Don't pretend the gift is operative. Keep your mouth closed. That's what Paul is saying. He ties that directly to the absence of an interpreter. To the absence of an interpreter. All these expensive conferences about the gifts and about particularly the gift of languages. I would say many of those individuals need to keep silent as well. But related to this, the answer is very simple about if gifts, the gift of languages, has continued or ceased. Show me the gift with clear and proper interpretation. And I want to test it. I want to scrutinize. I want to know how you came upon the language that you're speaking. Did you learn it or was it endowed? I have as a Christian the right to test that. I have a right to, on the spot, want to hear clear interpretation. And if you don't have an interpreter for me, I need you to sit down. You're not to speak here. You're not permitted and you're not allowed. You're not sanctioned by the Holy Spirit. And I say that so many need to sit down because they're getting this wrong in the mother tongue, the mother language. They're claiming to have the gift of teaching and they have nothing to say that agrees with God. You too can take a seat. There is order in the church. There is a sense in which from our mouth to your ears, from your mouth to my ears, we have to say that which agrees with the word of the Lord. It has to, in its explanation, conform directly to what God has said. 
It's why later in the epistles, I think Paul is tying this very point to it when he says, the one who possesses the gift of teaching must be what? Able to teach. Not just desiring to teach, must be able to teach. Because if you're not able to teach, you will not handle the mystery of godliness revealed in the way that it needs to be handled. Paul doesn't say, let's have a debate. He doesn't say, let's figure out the historical precedent of this gift. All those things are helpful in some ways, but what Paul says is simple. If it doesn't look like a language that is known, which he says earlier, because all language has meaning. No language is without meaning. There's several different kinds of languages, but all languages used in the assembly of the church as a gift must be followed with interpretation or that has no place in the church. There's your cessation. There's your cessation. He doesn't mean make up the interpretation. He doesn't mean one person babble and the other pretend they know what's being said. No. Real language that can be discerned, tested, and measured with real on-the-spot interpretation that is free, clear, and accurate. Paul doesn't say pay for this gift. He doesn't say pay for the ability to argue about this gift. He says if it's not accompanied by interpretation, please don't speak. Keep silent. How dare Paul be so divisive and harsh, telling people to be quiet because they don't agree with God? I say that somewhat sarcastically, but I say that to drive home this point. That it's important to agree with God. It's important to speak for God or to hold your tongue until you have to say what God says. If you don't have to say what God says, it is best not to speak. Paul says with reference to this gift, if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. Listen to this. He's allowed to speak. He just can't speak to the assembly. Paul wants him to default to prayer. The second part of this says, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let him speak to himself and to God. If there's no one there to interpret, he can speak in whatever language he likes. But it's best if he just speaks to himself and to God. Bible tells us to pray without ceasing. Prayer is speaking to God about one's desires, about God's decrees, about his perfections, about God's outcomes. But it, that is speaking to God, and that is permitted, and we're told to pray without ceasing. Paul says if you don't have anything in God's order to speak before God's people, then pray to the Lord. Speak to God. Build up the inner man and build up the inner man before God and speak to God. And then he moves to prophecy. He moves to prophecy. You see that the scrutiny is certainly more explicit as we look at verse 29. But you see the same parallel number and the parallel order. Let two or three prophets speak. Let two or three prophets speak. Again, it's not all speaking at once. He's assuming it's the same order as before. Let two or three prophets speak. 
So here's the question you have. Were there prophets in the New Testament church? Absolutely. Absolutely. In the face of an unfinished canon that was being transcribed in the age of the apostles, you see prophets are still prevalent, but they're New Testament prophets. The content of what they say is specifically and directly related to what we will study together in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Their message is about the cross. Their message is about the resurrection. Their prophecies are related to new covenant matters that can be tied specifically to the old covenants. They deal in that way. And so you see that they're dealing in that way before a canon is finished. They're prophesying things that will come to pass. Things that we now look back upon as prophetic writings, being able to, with the gift of teaching, with the gift of understanding these things, the gift of discernment, we can actually now test those things. But you see here in a format where this gift was live, operative, on demand, you needed someone to sanction the gifts. Look at this. Let two or three prophets speak. And then look at what he says. Let the others pass judgment. So you had individuals in the same way with the languages coming up to speak. And you had those who were listening test that what was said is in agreement with God himself. He's not saying that it's okay to have fallible prophecy or fallible prophets, meaning with errors. Because there would be no reason to test it if the curve was that much of a curve. What he's saying is, let them speak one by one. Let us hear and let us judge. Verse 30, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. He's speaking of the extension of the revelatory aspect of prophecy. The gift that God gave of revelation to those in that current church context. And he's saying that the word is being spoken in the assembly. That it comes directly from God to man to those who are hearing. And you see this scrutiny because that's what order leads to. Order should lead to scrutiny. You should not be distracted. It shouldn't be things in the life of the church that weigh you down so much in your mind and in your ability to discern and test and measure, taking you away from the ability to listen clearly and to say that agrees with God or that does not agree with God. So much of what is today put forward as programs to you are meant to distract you from discernment. It's meant to weigh you down, get you sleepy, get you weary, get you so emotionally high you don't really have the capability to test it because you're just happy or to get you so emotionally low, you're desperate. Instead, what Paul desires is order. I want you to be able to listen very carefully to what is said. I don't want you to test it all by eloquence or by outside appearance or credentialism. I want you to make sure what is spoken is tested and that there is a permissive order 
and a stopping point. You're not listening to 50 people give prophecy at the most three. You're not listening to 50 people give languages at the most three. One by one in order. One by one in order. This is not what we know in government as a political so-called filibuster. Where someone hijacks the legislative floor and they just talk to wear you down. To make sure the legislation surrounding you does not get passed. To make sure other speakers can't speak. To make sure you're so fatigued you'll just settle for whatever happens next. Welcome to the modern evangelical church. It's simply a filibuster. Paul doesn't want that. He says, I want it clear. I want it patient. I want it peaceful. And I want it in order. Not I, but the Holy Spirit. Remember how he started? What is the outcome? What is the outcome? It's what he wants. Look at this. If a revelation is made to another who is seated... The first one must keep silent. So you give the revelation and you don't keep speaking. You have to let the person hear what is said, digest what is said, discern what is said and test it and make sure that it's true prophecy. Make sure that it's true. You don't keep flooding them and speaking to them to confuse their ability to test what is said. None of this is obscure. It's actually very clear. Remember, as I first started studying Corinthians, and I remember studying it in another context that was a bit charismatic, and I remember how confusing it was and how disorderly I thought this was. But when you come to Corinthians in the manner of how the Lord has revealed it, it is very clear, very sober, very orderly, structured even. Words that... People who are hiding things or bringing chaos or building personality cults, they fear those words. Especially when you refer those to God's decrees, to what he's already established. Look at verse 31. For you all can prophesy what? Not all together, one by one. There's a purpose. Why does Paul want them to prophesy one by one? Why does he not, why does he not want them to prophesy all together? And I'm just trying to listen to my choice of whatever is being said. Well, because look at the purpose statement that follows in verse 31. So that all may learn and all may be exhorted or encouraged. So that all may learn. There's an instructive and edifying element to this. And Paul says the order is what helps establish and bring that forward. Not the chaos. Not necessarily emotionalism used as a manipulative tool. It's I want you to listen and then be stirred. I want you to listen clearly and then you are welcome to the corresponding emotional response, be it worship, falling on your face, being convicted. But I need you to listen. And this has to be done in order so you can listen well. They already were a people of chaos. They build up factions. And people are just joining the factions for reasons that have nothing to do with God's decrees. Look at what he says in verse 32. 
I talked about the boundaries of these gifts, specifically of prophecy, that the boundary of the gift speaks to whether the gift has continued or for a time if it has ceased. You look at verse 32 and you recognize something about the gift of prophecy. That there had to be prophets and there had to be prophets prophets who were authenticating what was said. Look at verse 32. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. You don't want people who are false prophets of the spirit of Antichrist prophesying in the church of the Lord. And so Paul, it's interesting that he doesn't simply say prophecy is subject to the prophets. He says the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Remember what is said later in John? Test the spirit in first John, test the spirits to see what? If they come from God. Test the spirits to see if they come from God. The gift of distinguishing spirits. It's not, oh well, I don't know. Seems like a brother. No, it's test the spirits. I want to know if you come from God. I don't want to have to guess. I want to know that what you says agrees with him. I want to know that how you walk agrees with him. And so he calls for the prophets to be scrutinized by the prophets. That makes you wonder something. Why so many have tried to resurrect the so-called office without the scrutiny of actual prophets to test them. So many call themselves prophets. And their words don't agree with scripture and they're not tested by people who agree with scripture. And yet they're prophets, so-called. Paul said there are actual prophets to whom your spirit is subject to as you bring forward prophecy. Why does he say that? Yes, I believe he's saying it because the scrutiny is certainly something that has to happen. Yes, there is a sense in which there's a destructive element if this isn't taking place. But I also believe that it goes to God's very nature. A prophet who comes forward is actually supposed to be speaking for God. As we prayed this morning, we talked about intentionally the prophet Moses, God speaking through Moses. Moses did not have the latitude or longitude to speak in such a way that he wasn't speaking for God. Because then he's called a false prophet. And we know, according to the law, false prophets are dealt with on the penalty of death at that time. But here, they're to be excommunicated from the church if they're speaking falsely. So in the absence of actual prophets, you don't have people or shouldn't have people who are calling themselves prophets. And you don't get to deconstruct the perfective explanations or the perfective expectation of the gift. So the gift, in other words, is to be explained perfectly. And the expectation is that the gift is used perfectly. You don't get to change that because you can't prove there are prophets. You don't get to say, well, prophecy is now this. And you don't get to say that prophecies can be with error. Because what would be the point of having prophets be subject to other prophets? But the reason is in verse 33. 
For God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. He's not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. It goes to God's very nature to be clear. Perspicuity is what we call it. That is to be clear, to be clear in its presentation and its understanding. And God is certainly not a God of confusion. This is not simply a word that means confusion so much as it means anarchy, the effects of disorder. The opposite of order is disorder. But this deals with the effects. The effect of it is anarchy, something without rule, without government, without leaders, without expectation. That already happened during the time of the judges. That was not a good time. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Paul is saying that God is not a God of that. It's not simply confusion or that you're kind of perplexed and you're trying to figure out what's said. No, it's disorder. It's the effect of being confused. When you don't have clear direction, you are now given over to disorder. Instead, he says peace. Prince of peace. The one who grants peace to all men with whom God is pleased. The Prince of Peace. He's a God of peace. And look at this. It's the same in all the churches. There's nothing wrong with you if you expect the church to be perfecting. There's something wrong with you if you go to, you can't stop jumping around to so many of them and you're saying they're all not perfect. Well, maybe you are a part of the disorder. Maybe you're sowing disorder because you don't understand God's decrees. Maybe you're not being taught God's instructions and decrees. There's no boundary surrounding what you do that's governed by the word of God. In the absence of those clear orders that God has given and the clear order he has purposed and designed for his church, there is confusion. Paul says, I don't want that. You have that already in your factions. He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. As in all the churches of the saints. All here in its context certainly means all. Because he's dealing with the specific unit of the churches of the saints. We will look next time to a verse that has invoked controversy. We'll look at it in its context in verse 34. I believe you'll be encouraged by what you hear as we look at that together and continue our time in chapter 14. Pray that this has been a blessing. Let's pray.